tonight I would like to remind to speak also because it's coming up soon in the metaphysical workshop and uh, to understand how karma works or what it is I would like to describe a little bit the process of evolution as seen in yoga as understood in yoga even the motto of this school is choose evolution and it seems like people can choose or not and what is this evolution for most people the word evolution is um, related with the Darwinistic biological theories of evolution and how does evolution uh, dovetail with yoga and with spirituality and with uh, spiritual and metaphysical practices it's still a little bit unclear for many people like choose evolution you know it's like okay you do yoga so does it mean that people who did agama for the last five years they have evolved like is this a fake motto what does it mean like if you join agama you choose evolution if you do yoga practice you choose evolution so how is that it means that people who did yoga in Agama or elsewhere if they did authentic yoga good quality yoga does it mean that they became more evolved how many evolved persons are in this room how can you evaluate it now if I give you an IQ test we can find out how many of you have an IQ over a hundred and how many of you have an IQ under 100 or whatever other uh, limit we put so we can measure at least technically those who are very intelligent from those who are not so intelligent how do you measure evolution what is evolution is it possible for us to say that some people in this yoga hall tonight are more evolved human beings and that there would also probably be a couple of people in this room who would be being polite and politically correct more less evolved more unevolved what does that actually mean what are the people who are evolved and what are the people who are less evolved what is characteristic to them and what ensues from that and how does that apply to the yoga practice when you go to a yoga group if you are in one of the levels in Agama there in the hall there are 20 people practicing yoga with a teacher and apparently not all of them are equally evolved just as not all of them are equally beautiful externally physically just not as as not all of them are equally intelligent just as not all of them are equally physically strong apparently they are all not of them equally evolved and that is a, a very provocative concept especially because we don't see a way of evaluating it and then it's purely subjective this subject of evolution is very very important and it is also a part of our metaphysical workshop which happens once a year perhaps once a year in Kopangan and sometimes once a year in Rishikesh as well and um, this metaphysical workshop was precisely because of that considered very very important there are advanced teachers in Agama who say if you should do one workshop in Agama 
that's not actually the Tantra workshop, that's the metaphysical workshop. Like the metaphysical workshop says a lot of things which are not said in the yoga courses. Not because the yoga courses are shy and they don't want to say it, but simply because the yoga courses don't have time and there is not the, the, the space, so to speak, for uh, going into those details. So the metaphysical workshop is a complement to our yoga courses very much. And it gives you some of the basic ideas about precisely this story of the evolution of the human being. Uh, tonight I don't have uh, 36 hours of teaching available and I don't intend to do many, many practical demonstrations and other applications. That's why this is just a lecture which is touching some essential aspects which even if you don't have time or if you don't have the karma to attend a metaphysical workshop this summer or in this lifetime, then nevertheless you will remain with some very clear ideas about what's the story with evolution. What do the yogis mean when they say choose evolution? You can choose to evolve in a different way. And um, this is one of the basic pillars of the metaphysics of yoga and what applies to the life and uh, development of the human being. After all, if you look at it, you are going to see that evolution is actually essential in spirituality. If you don't consider spirituality, if yoga would be just a stretching and a contortionist, like you do yoga for six months, you do yoga for one year, then you can put your leg up here, your foot up here, and press your knee down because your legs have become more soft, and you can do the half lotus, and you can do the lotus, and you can do the matsyendrasana, and you can do the paschimottanasana very, very nicely, and it's like you have progressed, there is a transformation in you, and that transformation concerns muscles, ligaments, bones, and of course you know that it's a pretty poor investment, because for a while you are going to feel elastic, flexible, and really nice, and a hundred years from now, it's going to be food for the worms, it's going to be disappeared since long in a hundred years from now. So it's like, sure, you give a lot of attention, it's like you are uh, taking good care of your vehicle, of your ride, of your mount, but ultimately it's going to go away. It's a temporary investment into something which is of some usefulness for now. So when we talk about evolution, obviously that evolution has to be some other kind of purpose, because otherwise it's, it's like there is no hope. This is one of the biggest things in spirituality. And I don't know how many of you realize it. And of course some people are pissed off at yoga and at people like me because we seem to be cheating in some way or another. Because when you do spirituality, either you go in a Buddhist monastery or in a Christian monastery or you come to a school of yoga, to an ashram or something, one of the things which is very, very characteristic is that because of this concept of evolution, you start having some hopes. Hopes. You hope that something will happen to you. And if in the moment when you stop hoping, in that moment you are gone. 
Spiritually, you are in a disaster phase. Many people come to yoga and they find it easy to quit smoking, to quit drinking, to turn vegetarians, to start controlling their sexual energy, because, and they are like this, like, oh my God, I'm even doing it with joy. Why is that joy? Because your soul has got wings. Your soul is flying. Your soul is hoping for something. Then somebody says, Ah, nah, Swami is a fornicator and a womanizer. All this agama is just a business that cuts your hope. Then you start smoking, then you start taking drugs because I lost my hope. I had a beautiful hope and in the name of that hope, I could climb Mount Everest. I could do anything. And if I don't have that hope, that's why there are people who when they wake up in yoga, they fight with their hopelessness. There are many people who are, you know, coming up with this attitude of the French intellectual, smoking and being what the French call blasé, which means like, oh, yeah, sure, I've heard that before. Uh, like, nothing can turn me on. <laughs> I'm born, I'm already born, and I have reached the ceiling of my life. I have reached plateau. And then it's like, I, I, I'm not really excited by anything. For many people, that's one of the big challenges. Can your soul catch fire again? Can I actually light your soul on fire? That's my mission as a guru. That's what gurus do. Gurus show you the way and they put hope in your heart. And when you have no hope in your heart, it's a disaster. If any one of you would bother to study Christian theology, you probably have heard even from uh, uh, movies, terrible movies like Seven or something like that, that there are seven capital sins. The Christian theology says that there are seven capital sins. And actually beyond the capital sins, there are some further sins. There are sins which are bigger than the seven capital sins. And those are, among others, it's a bit more complicated, but those are, there's a category which are called sins against the Holy Spirit. And the sins against the Holy Spirit are much worse than the seven capital sins. And there is one which tops even those. You would not believe it. You'd think it's... Uh, Whatever, murder or uh, fornication or gluttony or, you know, uh, other and other things which uh, the, the Christian church would uh, list there and they would not be considered very politically correct today. But you'd be wrong. The, the ultimate sin, sin, the biggest sin on the scale of Christian sins is absolutely shocking. The worst sin of them all is hopelessness. When you lost your hope, you've lost everything. Everything is gone. Then you are going to murder and then you are going to rape and then you are going to do all the abominations. People that have no hope anymore, they can sink to the bottom of, of 
perdition, on the road to perdition. That's why hope is very important. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, when she studied the five stages of dying psychologically, what people go through as they are preparing for death, she came to the same conclusion. There are five stages of death, but there is one sixth factor which is there all the time or isn't, and that makes the difference, and that's hope. If you die with hope, you die in a totally different way than if you die without any hope. And that's why, remember that what is at stake is very big. Like, hopelessness is the death of the soul. It's very, very terrible. And that's why when people come to spirituality, they get different kinds of hope. I remember one of my good friends, who today is a great yoga teacher, is considered by many people very great in yoga, and this friend, I taught him some yoga, and I started teaching him about yama and niyama, first level stuff. And his wife told me and other friends that after a few months, she told us, you know, she said in the night, in the day, in the evening, when you taught him about yama and niyama, and you started spelling out ahimsa and satyam and all those, he came home in tears to his wife, and he said, you know, it's like, I, I learned about this, and I'm so troubled in my heart in a positive way, and I'm so impressed and so touched, I'm to tears, it was a very masculine man, very like, he wouldn't be easily impressed, and he said, do you realize, he said to his wife, that if this is true, finally there are some people in this world that I can trust? Do you realize that, you know, like I lived until now like a wild animal, like a lonely wolf, just fending for myself. I was an individualist all my life. And if there are some people who really believe in Ahimsa and Satyam and Asteya and all those, it's like, finally I can open up. It brought him to tears. Just this, that there is somebody, you know, there is the, this is a hope. This is utopia. This is a brave new world, you know, let's, let, let's make a butt naked island where we can do yoga and tantra and when we can trust in each other. Let's build a county on the face of this earth somewhere from where the assholes are excluded. As soon as somebody proves to be an asshole, he, gets, he or she gets the boot out. Get out of our little country. We want a country without assholes. No? Like we want a country where you can always communicate. Trust. We don't need wicked people. We, wickedness is prohibited. No, we want to be good we want to have hope. This hope, this is a hope. People are making intentional communities. Very often their hopes are not fulfilled. And many people who went into the kibbutz movement in Israel or other intentional communities in Europe, in North America and so on, very five years later, ten years later, they dropped out of it. And they dropped out because they felt... Uh, it's not as idealistic as I thought it was going to be. Like, I lost hope. And in the moment when you lose hope, I've seen people losing hope 
in Christian religion, in Buddhism, in yoga, in many, many things. And usually when people lose hope, they go down a lot. They start smoking, they start drinking, they start abusing themselves, they start doing a lot of things, almost like a demonic revenge. Like for five years, I had sunshine in my soul, and I dreamt about sunshine, and now it's not there? Fuck it, you know, it's like I, I start hating myself and the whole world, and I start punishing myself. That's why this is the one thing which may not die. Hope. You should never let hope die. You can simply say, you know, it's like I went into a Buddhist monastery and they were all egoistic bastards. That doesn't mean that Buddha did not live. That does not mean that Buddha was not right. And that does not mean that the Buddha ideal is not possible. I don't want to kill the hope in my heart. I can blame it on the fact that people are imperfect. Indians and Tibetans, they blame it on the fact that we live in Kali Yuga. It's Kali Yuga and there are a lot of inferior spirits incarnated at this time. We are surrounded by human form gorillas and chimpanzees, you know. They have a human body, but the soul inside their body is an animal. So, yes, the world is a bitter place. There can be a lot of ugly things happening. Priests are cheating and buggering little boys. Gurus are falling off their pedestal. Lamas are questionable in many, many ways. That doesn't mean that I touch the hope in my heart. My hope is not related to people. I have been sorely disappointed by some of my gurus. And it has been like I understand exactly what this does to a human being. Like it, it almost, you know, it, was, it had a devastating psychological effect that you put somebody on a god-like pedestal and then they disappoint you. But remember that it's part of the spiritual culture that you put God before everything. That's why, for example, in the Christian monasteries, they avoid this because the Guru is not your confessor, not your elder. The Guru is Jesus. And Jesus will never fall off the pedestal. Some people try to make him fall off the pedestal. They say, actually, he had a dick and he stuck it into Mary Magdalene and ejaculated into her. That's just the attempt of the demons to create a less than perfect image about Jesus, while the people who worship Jesus, they put him up there. They simply say Jesus didn't even need to have sex, because he was transhuman, he was above humanity, he didn't need to use his genitals, he was like the angels in heaven. No, It's different views. Do you want to look up to Jesus, or do you want to say he was a carpenter from Nazareth who was buggering Mary Magdalene and had a child in Spain and something like Then you transform Jesus in something banal. You can't worship him anymore and this destroys the hope. But as I said in Christian monasteries, if one of your elders or somebody goes and fornicates or steals money or you find them drunk day after day, that doesn't decrease your hope because human beings are fallible. Jesus is still perfect and Jesus is the star for which you go. And thus, I'm telling you all these things because the process of evolution 
is exactly related to this. It's essential in spirituality. If you understand spirituality correctly, spirituality is about evolving. Like we claim, and you are going to understand a few dimensions of this, that if you do yoga, you are going to somehow improve as a human being. In Christianity, when they spoke about, they say, Saint Basil the Great, that man was an improved man. Like there are human beings who are built like everybody else, and then some human beings are improved human beings. Exactly as you buy a car from a factory, and then you start putting improvements on it. You buy a special carburetor, you add some nitro combination of fuel, you have special wheels with special tires, and that car becomes a race car. It's an improved car. In the same way, yoga says that human beings can be improved. If you stand on your head or meditate with a a mantra or something, in five years you will be an improved human being. How much improved and how relevant is that improvement, that's to be discussed. But still the idea remains that there is improvement. If any one of you will have this thing, I started practicing yoga in 2016 in Kopangan with Agama. And in 2020, I was just the same. Nobody will do yoga. Yoga will become the most boring and useless thing in the world. Like, why would you learn to do the Scorpio pose or the peacock pose? Why would you learn to do Anuloma Viloma Pranayama? Why would you learn to do the complex Oli Mudras or something when in four years you're just going to be the same? See, when you say that I'm going to transform and evolve and improve, this is like a carrot hanging in front of your nose and this is the hope. Without this hope, completely useless to do anything. You do vipassana, you do vipassana because there is a chance that you will hit jackpot and that you will become like Buddha. If there is no chance that you will hit jackpot and become like Buddha, then why do vipassana? Because it's one of the most boring things in the world. So it's like you do it only because there is something at the other end of the rainbow. There is, uh, you are looking forward to something. This something is illustrated precisely by the word evolution. Human beings, not in a biological DNA way, although some experts today, they say that even the DNA reflects that. It's a long story, we don't need to go there today. Um, But that the human being in an internal way, in their Manomaya Kosha, in their astral body, in their Vijnanamaya Kosha, in their mental body, they somehow improve. There will appear some improvements. That that improvement can mean that your IQ will grow with 10 points or that your memory will improve or that your aesthetical sense and intuition will improve, which are much more hard to measure. But the idea is that something will improve. This is in the tantric tradition we call this the energy of Kali which is the first of the energies of the 12 cosmic powers, symbolized by that black goddess, very popular in India. Kali represents exactly this idea, that there is time, and the thing which time makes possible is transformation. If there would be no time, you wouldn't be able to say 200 years from now, I'm going to be a Buddha, or 200,000 years from now, I'm going to be a Buddha. 
because there will be no time and therefore no transformation. Everything would stay just as it is. But it doesn't. Exactly as physically you can go to the gym and you can change your body, exactly as you can train in ballet or classical dance or something, and exactly in the same way, changes can be brought forward. Changes can be brought forth, and this is precisely the idea about evolution. It is very interesting, and I'll not go in details. This is something which we explain more in the workshop, although it's, this is the first three hours of the workshop. It's a preliminary, even in the workshop. The spiritual evolution was mock-copied by the idea of biological evolution as a parallel. When the idea of biological evolution appeared, and it upset many religious people, it was very interesting. All of you who did school, biology in school, you have a concept that life may be on this planet, at least that's what scientists want you to believe. It started with amoebas and other monocellular organisms, and it became vegetal life, complex vegetal life like bushes and trees. And then it branched into the animal field, and it became monocellular animal life, and then it became multicellular animal life with the protozoa and whatever, and then going into crustacean and subaquatic life, and terrestrial life, and insects, and then reptiles, and whatever. I'm not following directly into detail, but roughly. And then at some point, fishes appeared, and then birds appeared, and then mammals appeared, and the last of the mammals which supposedly appears are us. We are a different race, we are the top mammal, and therefore we are the highest or the ultimate byproduct of this evolution. It's very interesting that while, and biology did not copy it, like, okay, that's what Buddha said, why don't we copy him? But the funny thing is that when one like Darwin made such theories, and actually Lamarck and others were more productive than Darwin, funny thing is that Darwin died as a religious person, and he actually denied many things which have been said in his name. Darwin was used by materialistic and atheistic scientists as a stooge. They used him like a smokescreen, like, look, Darwin said. Darwin says, no, I didn't say that. Very often. You know? So it's like, it doesn't matter, we don't need to go there, but his name is used abusively. So when Darwin and those other people wrote those, the- those theories, then basically they made you believe that this is how life evolved, that there is a primitive DNA in the amoebas and monocellular life, and it becomes more and more evolved DNA, and more and more evolved DNA, and then birds and mammals, and finally humans, and this is how biology evolved. You'd be surprised to know that 2,500 years ago, and it's much older than 2,500 years ago, both in, the, in Krishna's India, as well as in Buddha's East India, and not only, this was the famous favorite theory of evolution of the soul. Not of evolution of the carcasses, but the evolution of the soul. Intuitively, they hit exactly the same line. And they basically said there is something which we can call Atman or consciousness. 
the Buddhists got fed up because the Hindus were twisting the word Atman into something very egocentric, selfish, inferior. And that's why Buddha even refused this concept of Atman. And uh, he said, I don't want to hear no, no Atman, no self. But he describes something which is equivalent to it, which he calls the Buddha nature. And the Buddha nature is emptiness and whatever. He tries to define it, but still there is a Buddha nature. This eternal thing, this consciousness, according to Hindu, Buddhistic and other oriental old sources, like in Jainism, in the Jain religion of India is just the same, and the list could continue. This soul, spirit, which cannot be demonstrated by science until the 21st century, we simply cannot show 100% sure that you have a soul or a spirit. It depends up to your intuition if you feel that you have a soul, an Atman, a spirit. And the spirit is going through, is attaching, it's not a material thing, it's a spiritual thing. And this spiritual thing for a while piggybacks on some things of nature. It, it's like a driver that jumps into a car and drives that car. And the cars which this driver drives are getting better and better. They are getting more and more evolved. So instead of having an evolution of the DNA, we have an evolution of the spirit who uses the DNA only as a lodging instrument. It uses it as a, as a sort of a springboard. It uses the matter like a docking station. It docks itself onto a piece of flesh, which is your body, stays there for 80 years, and uses that flesh for gaining experience, and then it goes further in its evolution. And Buddha's will of Dharma is like human being. The spirit is attached first to atoms, molecules, crystals, like very organized structures of atoms and molecules. Then it goes to vegetal life from monocellular to multicellular, like for Buddha, a tree is more evolved than a monocellular algae cell which flows in the ocean. So even vegetal life has degrees of evolution. And then it also goes into animal life. And in animal life, Gauss comes from primitive life, monocellular, until it becomes more and more evolved. So according to one like Buddha, approximately... I don't know how much to say to impress it on you. Like maybe a billion years ago, the soul which is now in your body, a billion years ago was in an amoeba. Was attached to an amoeba. And in those days, that spirit of yours was unevolved. It was like kindergarten. It was like very primitive. The idea which somebody brought forth to this was like the idea of polishing a diamond. Like in the beginning, the diamond is just an ugly looking stone. And then if you are a jeweler, you make a plan and you start polishing it. And as soon as you finished one facet, you look at it and it's very different from the rest. That's shining, sharp, crystal clear. You can see that that's a diamond. But still there is a lot of it which is not polished. According to a Buddha-like understanding and a Krishna-like understanding, Hindu-Buddhistic, Jainistic and many other religions of the East, your spirit went through all those stages. You have been a cell and you have been a fish and you have been 
a bird or maybe you have been bird 10 times until you exhausted the experience as a bird and then one day you incarnated as a mammal and then maybe it took you 25 lifetimes as different mammals starting from the more stupid ones and going to the more intelligent ones and one blessed day you finished being a mammal and you started being a human being. You simply graduated to the university. You quit high school and you went to university. This is the idea of evolution of the soul in Asia, because they simply say the soul cannot evolve in one life. If it's like according to the fundamentalistic Christian idea that you are a soul created by God, and you are kind of virgin, you have no experience, you are just blank, and then you are thrown in the body of a man, of a woman, and you live for 70 years or 80 years, and then you are supposed to draw the line and say, now I go to the kingdom of heaven, or I go to hell and I'm lost forever. They would say, there are people who are having totally banal lives, non-entities, faces in the crowds, numbers in a statistic, people for whom nothing really did happen. How are you going to justify that that person went from a non-entity to the kingdom of heaven or something. One lifetime is simply not enough for a soul to polish things. Like let's say that you are born in a Buddhist country or you sympathize with Buddhism and your teachers are asking you to develop loving kindness and compassion. And in the beginning, I come from a cynical Western environment or whatever, whichever it is, and I don't have any loving kindness. I don't have any compassion. And constantly, I have to try to feel compassion. How long time do you think will take before I start feeling some natural compassion? Like fake it before you make it. No, like I can fake it for five years and then one day I will start feeling it. How long time will it take for me to feel is this coming from my microphone? It had a sponge on it, which was protecting it from this sound. Anyway, so I'm sorry for the quality of the recording. Uh, back to our story. The idea is that if I just want to develop one quality, and that is compassion, it may take me 60 years of spiritual practice to develop compassion. If my heart chakra is not open and I go in a Christian monastery and there they say you should love your neighbor, you should love God. And love is a city in China for me. Like I've never felt love neither for myself nor for God nor for anything or anybody else. Can I open my heart chakra? Sure. In two years, in five years, in ten years, my heart chakra, if I keep hammering on it, it will eventually be open if I have a good teacher and if I have a good method. Because if I go in an absurd place where they pretend that they are going to open my heart chakra, then even 10 years will pass and my heart chakra won't be more open. And that's, of course, a terrible fiasco. But provided that the method is good and it's working, then I can theoretically open my heart chakra. Well, in 10 years, in 20 years, I can become a loving person. But hey, love is not the only thing. What about courage? What about intuition? What about self-discipline? 
What about, I don't know, imagination? Well, each one of them will take a lifetime to develop. And therefore, each one of them is like a facet of that diamond. That diamond has to be polished, but you cannot polish too much too quickly. It takes time. And that's why the Oriental tradition is rather in favor that this evolution of the soul happens over long, long durations of time. Even when you become a human being, and even when you can say, this is my life number one, like before, if I make a regression under hypnosis, I'll start going, because I'll discover that just a life ago I was a gorilla, or a chimpanzee. Okay, so this is my life number one. No wonder that sometimes I'm a little bit animalistic and primitive in my reactions. So this is my life number one. I start polishing. There's such a long way ahead. And this being said, you can try to not put it directly on me, put it on the wall here somewhere so it just brushes behind me. Yeah. So, this evolution in the Orient, in the Oriental tradition, it is considered that it takes long, long time. That's why the Orientals are rather in favor of the idea of reincarnation. I, for one, am not wanting to indoctrinate the, my pupils in the school with reincarnation, although that sounds like the more logical conclusion. Even the Christian church who doesn't go for it has not put a total end on it. It has been said about 12 centuries ago that when there will be the 8th great council of the Christian church, whatever that will be, it will raise the issue of reincarnation among others. It's been planned since 12 centuries ago that if there will be an 8th general Christian council, this idea would be analyzed seriously. Like it's not even been analyzed seriously. But the funny thing is that the Jews, the Jewish scriptures, mention reincarnation very clearly. They say a soul is polishing every side of it and slowly, slowly is becoming perfected in every life after life until it's becoming pleasant to God and dear to God and something like that. I'm not quoting a la lettre, but pretty much close to the meaning of it. And therefore, even Judaism, especially in its esoteric traditions, Kabbalah and others, simply says you can't explain evolution in one life. You at least at least two lives, that in one you are a man, and in the other one you are a woman. So you can understand how life is seen from the body of a man, and how life looks seen from the body of a woman. Not to mention that you can be weak and strong, rich and poor, virtuous and inclined to abomination and sin, that you can be strong and weak, that you can be a lot of things. There are lots of dualities of life, and when you have a life, you just usually experience one of those. And you have to see the other facet of the coin as well. And that's why, although I don't insist on it, and I don't insist on it for a very simple reason, there have been mystics and saints, such as, for example, the Christian saints, that were told by their theologians, don't even bring into account this story with the reincarnation. Don't talk about it. It's taboo. And guess what? Some of them flew in the air, and some of them saw Jesus. And some of them reached the kingdom of heaven. And the same thing happened with Buddhist saints in Thailand, and with yogis in India. Which proves 
that either you believe in reincarnation or not, it's not going to make any difference. You can still reach immortality. And therefore, since it's not important, what is it then? It's just an elegant, intellectual way of explaining the world. And it makes more sense than you have somebody who is born with polio and goes in a wheelchair and looks like Stephen Hawking and then he is hit by a car on the pedestrian lane and he becomes even worse than that. That person is supposed to become a Buddha, supposed to go to the kingdom of heaven. It's like, why so much different? One, one is a genius and composed music at the age of five like Mozart and then all you can say, well, that's the will of God. But then you are turning God into an idiot. Like God is a whimsical, irrational, bizarre character that does all sorts of things. One is raped to death in Somalia and one lives in luxury in Switzerland or something. You know That God, if there is karma, then you can say that the one that is raped to death in Somalia was Dr. Mengele in Auschwitz and deserves to be born in Somalia and be raped to death. That doesn't mean that I or you should do it. It doesn't justify evil. But at least it gives us an understanding that there is something which is called karma and people are having very different backgrounds. Not everybody is coming from the same place. Because otherwise, no, it's like you look and you say, why is all this happening? Why is God whimsy in such uneven and unfair ways? How is God a loving father for everybody when look what's happening in life? But if you extend that to a thousand lifetimes or to ten thousand lifetimes, then you can say everybody has their ups and downs. Not everybody is in the same place on this curve or slope of evolution. Some people have to bite the dust. Some people are at the stage where they are almost going into Buddhahood. And therefore, of course, life is a very different thing for every human being because the souls are having a very different history. So I'm not saying that... uh, Reincarnation is the answer. You may choose to believe in it or not. To me, as a yoga teacher, makes no difference. What makes the difference is if you stand 30 minutes every day on your head. If you take a tapas to stand on your head 30 minutes every day, that's what really concerns me. Because that's what the effort which you do. Believing in reincarnation or not is not of the essence. And many of these theological things... But I have seen in general that people who understood the universe in this way, they were more calm. They were more logical. Like they did not live in an absurd universe where there was some whimsical unknown force which was doing things. The universe was generally making more sense. Of course, nowadays when you have people like the Dalai Lama who says, I am the 14th incarnation of one and the same spirit, and I have been enlightened for 14 lifetimes, and this is my 14th body in a row, and this young man here who is called the 17th Karmapa is the same thing, and he has been incarnated 17 times until now, and this is his 17th body in a row, and we keep doing this since the 13th century. Or God... Then you can say, other Dalai Lama is a cheater, a liar, or a psychotic person, a neurotic person who is deluded severely, and he doesn't know what he's talking about, or if you accept that he is the heir of a long spiritual lineage, and he seems to make sense, then you can say, okay, there is that as well, 
and I could go, I don't intend tonight to argue co-pro and contra reincarnation. I'm just telling you that spiritual evolution seeming to be a process which takes millions of years, it normally has to be accomplished in various steps. Here there are so many variations. There's been a great metaphysician of Europe in the 20th century, a Frenchman called René Guénon. René Guénon wrote some jaw-dropping books on metaphysics, which most people never read because the guy was a mathematician turned metaphysician and he writes at a very at the level of mathematical abstractions, like his books are for people with IQs definitely over 100, and not many people get to read René Guénon most of them, half of them are not even translated in English, they are in French in the original and René Guénon he analyzed Vedanta and all the Eastern metaphysics and he got to a funny, he's, René Guénon is like 98% bullseye in metaphysics. He has especially one thing where he goes a bit weird. That's everybody has pointed that, that in all René Guénon things, he doesn't fit with the traditions exactly on one thing. He says that when the soul evolves, it actually goes in different forms of life, but it can go in different forms of life only once. Like, you can be human only once. This is your one and only human life. You've been an animal, now you are human. After this, you are going to go into something which is beyond human or something, and that's it. And the evolution still is, and it still takes some time. Most metaphysicians uh, declined that. And they said, here, René Guénon read wrong. He simply didn't get properly the traditions because nine out of ten other metaphysicians, they say something else. So when you read Julius Evola or when you read Ananda K. Kumaraswamy, these are two other names of great metaphysicians of the 20th century, then you read something else. So I'm just telling you that this story with the reincarnation and with this is uh, superfluous and it's arguable. And um, I can give you so many references about it, but there's no need. I do that in the metaphysical workshop where people need to know some details. This circle of evolution where the spirit, imagine a circle, I usually draw it in the workshop, I will, uh, because we need to fix a lot of things on that circle. So you start from the top of a circle, like a 12 o'clock position, and there you are related with atoms, the consciousness of the atom, as the Theosophical School called it. And then you go into minerals, crystals, vegetal life, complex vegetal life, animal life, complex animal life, and you reach to human. And from human, it continues, and it comes back to the top of the circle. It's like a circle, or like a spiral, which closes on itself. This circle is called by Buddha the wheel of Dharma. Dharma meaning the order of the universe, the way things are, the wheel of Dharma. The universe has the wheel of Dharma, and everybody is somewhere there. So you have evolved and evolved and evolved, and when you have reached to be human being, human being is not the last. And the last thing is, of course, the Bodhisattva and the Buddha. Buddha is, idealistically speaking, Buddha is considered the accomplishment. In India, they would call that moksha or mukti, they would call that enlightenment in Buddhism, and they would call that liberation in India. 
And in, in Zen Buddhism, they would call it also Nirvana, but they would also call it Satori. And in yoga, they would call it Samadhi. And there are various names for this final state where the human being gets a clarity like that of a crystal, of an atom. But meanwhile, you've been through the whole manifestation. So it's like returning to the peace of the Buddha Nirvana, of the meditation. But that peace is after going through everything. And the soul, it's exactly like you take a piece of bread and you dip it in different sauces. In the end, when you have dipped it in 20 sauces, it's spiced with everything. So Buddha is different from an atom or from a crystal or from a mineral through the fact that he has been animal, human, demigod and everything and he has accumulated a huge experience. So it's a soul with a story. With a, with a history attached to it. So that is why um, did there, I, there exists this clear idea that your soul evolves. Right now, you are human. Your karma, your dharma, whatever you want to call it, the moment for you is that you are born in a human body. Buddhists and others, by the way, they consider that being born in a human body is the greatest thing one can obtain on the face of this earth. Like they think it's the greatest gift. Because if you are a, bo- a human being, you are not passive like a cow. You can sit and meditate five hours per day. Cows cannot do that because they don't have the choice. And therefore, being born as a human being gives you such a degree of freedom and of choice that you can stop everything you do in your life, go in a Buddhist monastery, meditate 10 hours per day, reach nirvana. Ultimately, it's a matter of choice. And it's a matter if you are attracted by it, if you are interested in it. Because if you are not interested in it, I cannot push you to meditate 8 hours per day. Because it will be irrelevant for you or even boring or disturbing. Only if you have the longing and the hope. And that's why this thing that you are a human being, and of course, it brings very many things to it. I'm going to give you a few of the ideas which come together with it, some of them which are very important. First of all, evolution is so important in all the spirituality. Maybe everybody is deluded. And there isn't. But everybody who has spirituality thinks that you can take a human being who is half of an animal and turn them into a demigod or something. Everywhere, Christianity or Sufism or whatever you name it, Shintoism, there is always this thing that there is some evolution. This evolution is the ultimate valuing concept in terms of morality. Like, for example, is it acceptable to drink alcohol at all or not? Some religions say no. You drink alcohol, you've gone with the devil. In India, if you drink alcohol, you lost your caste. Of course, all of India has lost its caste by today. Uh, Probably 1% of the Indian inhabitants who didn't taste alcohol because they want to stick to their caste privileges. Everybody else is getting drunk day after day. Technically speaking, all of them have become pariahs. They are all of them outcasts. 
That's what the laws of Manu say. You touch alcohol, you are not one of us anymore. You are an outcast. So, is alcohol okay or not? Christian mystics say you shouldn't get drunk. You can drink a little glass of wine. French researchers even say it's good for your heart. It's healthy. But the first glass is from God. The better you share, the second one, you better share it with your friend. And the third one comes from the devil. Which means you can drink wine, not with the purpose of losing your mind. Not with the purpose of getting drunk. You can drink it like medicine. A glass, good for your heart. Good. That's, you are holy. You, you haven't erred. But you see, there are people who say, no, no. Even that glass, you can't. Is money acceptable or not? Like, for example, there are codes of ethics, like some of the Talmudic Jewish codes of ethics. If you borrow money to a non-Jew and if you don't charge interest on it to rip them off a little bit, you are guilty. You are not doing your duty. Like the Gentiles, the outsiders have to be ripped off a little bit because you are the chosen ones. And among you in the Jewish community, after seven years, all the debts are wiped out. So it's okay. Somebody borrows money, can't give them back. He's an idiot. Forgive him. You know, it's all. It doesn't work outside. In many Christians and in the fundamentalistic Islamic traditions of today, to borrow money and to charge interest on it is considered to be a severe crime. The Muslim banks, if you put your money in an Islamic bank, they don't charge usury. If they borrow you money, you just pay an administrative fee for the processing of the loan, which is the work of the clerks involved in the computers and whatever, but you are not paying interest. You borrow 20000 you give back 20000 because it's forbidden. So is the money, like alcohol, we saw some people say it's okay or not. With money, some people say money is the eye of the devil. Other people say money is okay. In China, they revived the philosophy of Confucius, according to which wealth is virtue. Like the people who are not wealthy are stupid sinners. They are weaklings and they are not wealthy because they smoke too much marijuana, they masturbate too much and they spend money chaotically. When you can accumulate $100,000 in your bank account, it shows that you are awake, strong, present, and you are not dilly-dallying and so on. Wealth, by Chinese morality, is virtue. The more wealthy you are, the more virtuous you are. It works in Thailand. That's why they give money donations to the temples. You gain merit. You make positive karma by giving hundreds of thousands of baht to the temples, to the monks. You buy your nirvana, little by little, brick by brick, by donating money. So, for them, money is not dirty. I have known Christian priests who are performing exorcism, rituals of exorcism, and if somebody would try to pay for a service to give them some money, they would go like this. They would say, I'm not touching money today because I have to do an exorcism. Like, money is dirty like the devil, you know, I'm not touching it. So, some people say money is the devil... And some people say it's a virtue. And the list could continue. Sex. In Tantra, we advise you to have as much sex with sublimation as possible. And other people say sex is the devil. It's the original sin. It's dirty from scratch. It's dirty from square one. So, how can you make sense 
in all these religions and theologies. And remember, all these things are said because according to the authors of those systems, it influences your evolution. The mantra is evolution. Like if drinking wine interferes with your evolution and makes you do stupid things and shoot yourself in the foot, then don't drink wine. Wine becomes the enemy. If sex is making you become attached and fornicating and blind and completely a demented idiot, then better stay celibate, you know. If sex is such a poison for your brain, stay away from sex. No, then it's better. You are healthier by not doing sex. And so on and so forth. And therefore, evolution is the ultimate valuing concept in spirituality, what is good and what is bad, what is a virtue and what is a sin, is if, it, if the authors of that religion think that that thing is in favor of the evolution or hindering the evolution. Everything which promotes evolution, everything which accelerates evolution is good. Everything which slows down evolution or stops it for a while because nothing can stop it forever, is evil, is bad. That's why even good and evil are ultimately determined by evolution. It's not about alcohol and money and sex and this. These are local applications of it. But the principle which governs them all is how do all these factors interfere with your evolution. Evolution is the moot point. Everybody cares about evolution. If you go in a monastery, your el- in a Christian monastery, your elders want you to eat meager food, they want you to do vigils and sing psalms, and they want you to do prayer, and they want you not to have sex, to be celibate, and everything which is on the list of do and don't do is meant to accelerate your evolution. That's what the, and that's why they have the sets of rules. Every religion <coughs> has its own sets of rules. It's because the people who founded those religions, they thought that that set of rules enhances your evolution. It's a foolproof, it's a watertight system which allows you not to fall off the path, but just to go forward, 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 as long as you stick to those rules of the game. Evolution is also one of the most sore subjects, since evolution cannot be compensated by anything except by divine grace. Of course, by divine grace, theoretically a soul can be flushed in divine energy, and it can step forward 20,000 light years in the way of evolution. That can happen because the divine grace can do anything. But exception made of the divine grace, there is no way to cheat like to say, I was in my fifth life as a human being, so I'm a young human being. My soul is quite primitive still. My diamond is not very polished. And then I'm going to cheat or give money to a monastery or something. And I'm going to be like somebody who lived 5,000 lifetimes in a human body. You can't replace that. The experience. The evolution. And that's why... Unfortunately, with the evolution, things are pretty bitter because if somebody is evolved, they are evolved. And if somebody is not evolved, they are not evolved. 
this gives rise to a lot of politically incorrect subjects, which, again, it's not our purpose to discuss here, and they can be very provocative, like the ancient Hindus believed that by prayer, by consecration, because the parents would pray constantly to God and to the deities, and they would be in harmony. When two parents are Brahmins, which means the highest caste, then the child which will be born out of those parents would be a very high soul. A soul with thousands of lifetimes. Even the Dalai Lama said the system of the Tibetan system of Tulkus, that Lamas was born as small children in families, was based on the fact that the parents were religious and they were doing a lot of prayer and consecration and they were pure. And he said, now that the Tibetan Buddhism has been chased out of Tibet and the Tibetans are not as pious and as pure as they used to be 500 years ago, he said, I can foresee clearly that this Tulku system of reincarnated Lamas will slow down and probably even disappear. Like the Lamas won't have parents to be born out of because there are no quality parents anymore to allow to a high soul, a bodhisattva soul, to be born in a family. Because if the parents are two drunks who are watching the Adams Family series and eating popcorn, what lama wants to be born out of those parents? A lama would feel a lama spirit, a spirit with 7,500 lifetimes beyond it, which is 94% a bodhisattva, will feel like vomiting having to be born of such parents and giving themselves for the next 15 years to be dependent on such a bunch of ignorant idiots. Therefore, uh, it's a matter of resonance. And in India, as I said, they thought that Brahmins will attract evolved souls. And that's why the child of a Brahmin deserves to be a Brahmin. Because there is a sort of a non-stop chain. But of course, if the Brahmins become corrupted and polluted, then they will not do their consecrations and rituals, and they will not stay pure, and then occasionally, Brahmins might attract a very low soul, because they have a bad karma, this Brahmin and his wife, they stole, they maimed, they killed, they have an infernal karma, and then they are going to get a child, which will torture the shit out of them, because their karma is bad, and that soul is not going to be a Brahmin anymore. That soul will be a soul coming directly from hell in that family. And then people would say, so that soul doesn't deserve to be a Brahmin. So you cannot have hereditary castes like this, that the children of Brahmins are Brahmins. Well, once upon a time, it worked. As long as the perfection of the practice is kept. Once you have abandoned the perfection of the practice, it starts falling apart. 2,500 years ago, Buddha, Gautama Buddha, the historical Buddha, came to India and he said the caste system has started falling apart. Which means there are high spirits born in low castes and you treat them like shit, but they are very evolved human beings. And they are crappy souls born in the families of the Brahmins and they ask for social privileges, but actually they don't deserve them. So, Buddha said 25 centuries ago, the caste system was good while it lasted, now it's obsolete. If you read Hindustan Times of tomorrow, 
you are going to see that the marriage, the classified for marriage, is based on the caste. Is 95% based on the caste. Buddha told them 2,500 years ago, stop this caste nonsense. Mahatma Gandhi told it to them 100 years ago, and India still can't stop using the caste system. It's so deeply ingrained in their brains that although somebody told them it doesn't work anymore, there are people, you know, like the founder of the Transcendental Meditation, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was from the lowest caste. He was a coolie. He was from the lowest caste of India. And the Indians were so ingrained in it that even when Maharishi Maharishi Yogi became a multi-multi-multi-multi-millionaire and he was living in the West and his disciples were the Beatles and other such people, he became a billionaire in the end of his life. When he came to India, they treated him like shit. And Maharishi Maharishi Yogi said, fuck India. You know, it's like I'm going to live in Holland. Nobody cares that I'm a coolie in Holland by family. Which means, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi said, I'm a high soul and fate has proven it. You know, because nobody becomes such a big guru without something to back them up. So, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi says, fate itself has proven that I am a guru, a world-class guru. And in India, they still think I'm a coolie. So, that's why I say, the caste system worked relying on this concept of evolution. The same thing, even worse is used by the ancient systems, which work in Thailand and in India and many places, based on races. For example, 200 years ago, if you'd ask any yogi from India, they would tell you that African nations contain less evolved souls. Like the black people are less evolved souls. That's how the bodies are made. That's, and the aboriginals of Australia, many of them would be less evolved. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. We're not going to start now a social debate. I'm specially throwing the cat between the pigeons just to show you that this can lead to very provocative concepts. Because evolution is very slippery. No? And is it true that things are so and so and what does it prove and so on? Of course, I could stay there. I don't want to stay there. I'm just showing you that this evolution is a very, uh, it's a very sore subject. And if somebody says, I think I'm not very evolved, then what would you do? So the question which comes with this is, am I evolved? How do you determine if you are evolved? No, like, maybe somebody becomes a guru and they go on the top of the food chain, but they don't deserve to be there. Maybe they are just a gorilla inside, in their soul. Maybe somebody is very evolved, and there is a lot of injustice and lack of recognition to that soul. How do I, which are the signs of evolution? The Tibetan gurus say that is the number of the lives lived. Like if you lived, you know, the Paramahamsa Yogananda says that if you reincarnate every 400, year, every 400 years, uh, the cycle of evolution as a human is about one, 2 million years. So that means you are going to have approximately 5,000 lifetimes as a human being. Buddha said that he remembered 10,000 lifetimes, but it's not fully understood if all 10,000 were human lives or some of them were pre-human lives. So it stays, generally in India, the consensus is that you have to live as a human life a few thousand lifetimes. If it's 5, if it's 10, if it's 4, if it's 6... Somewhere around that number. Several thousands of lifetimes as a human being. So Tibetans say, if you have lived 5,000 lifetimes already, 
then you are what we could call an old soul. And as an old soul, you have been very wise and very mature ever since you were a child. You were wiser than your parents. Your parents had immature childish behaviors and they did sometimes very unwise things. And you, although being five years old, you are like the sage of the family. You are sitting in a corner and watching and shaking your head and it's like everybody sounded so primitive. And it's like, why do people do these kinds of things? Any one of you who is like this, most probably you are an evolved soul who got born in a body and it can be seen early in life. Symbols for the Tibetan gurus to have this is that, first of all, you have aspiration for liberation. It's like in the famous movie, which we loved to play in Agama. Now we somehow lost it between the fingers. It will come back, I'm sure. We did movies for the first level, and one of the movies which illustrates this brilliantly is called The Groundhog Day. It's Groundhog Day again and again and again. It's like the same life. So after you've been in the Groundhog Day 5,000 times, nothing is really charming anymore. Because you've tried. So there are people who even when they are five years old, they are bored. They don't want anything. They don't want to become sportsmen. They don't want to become scientists. They don't want to become secret agents. They don't want to become policemen or firemen or doctors or anything. It's like been there, done that. And then for these people what remains is the aspiration for liberation. It's literally that. I am like a squirrel that runs in a circle. I am like a rat which runs in one of those circular cages. I want out. Please free me. Free me. I am a prisoner. This is what's called in India the longing for liberation. That's why it's called moksha or mukti. Because you've lived too many lifetimes and you want it to be over. Enough is enough. You don't remember consciously. But your subconscious mind in Vigana Mayakosha, in some deep layers of your mental body, they preserve every significant memory of all those 5,000 lifetimes. And some people have that page blank and some people have that page fully written. And then when I try to put something, it's like, nah, not again. You know, it's like there is something in you which goes like, I'm not interested. Then what the heck are you interested? I'm interested to get out. Please, can somebody show me the way out? You don't want to have children. Children are the... Ju- you know, I've had in 5,000 lifetimes, I've had 25,000 children. Enough. I don't want children anymore. Not because they are not sweet. Not be, but I simply don't want anymore. I'm fed up with children. I want out. I don't want children. Then for everybody around, you are like a bit insane. You know, it's like, why didn't Ramakrishna want to have children and be a normal family man? Because he was a super, super evolved soul and he was fed up with the human condition. He didn't want to be a human anymore. He had enough of being human. That's what's coming from evolution. To have aspiration after liberation. Tibetan gurus say you should long for your liberation like a, like a dove, like a, like a stag in the mountains longs for water in a droughty season. Like there is drought 
and your tongue is parched and you just want to go to go to a creek and drink some water. I'm longing for my liberation. I don't give a rat's ass on anything else. Just give me liberation. These people sound a little bit like crazy. Ramakrishna said, I think I'm crazy. And Bharavi Brahmani, his guru, he said, no, you are just a very evolved soul who wants moksha. And people around you, they want all sorts of other trinkets and they think you are abnormal. But you are actually superior, according to me, she said. So, aspiration after liberation, aspiration after realizing God, like some people want to see God. And guess what? There are people who don't give a rat's ass on it. How can I supplement that? Can I make any one of you to wish to hug God? Some of you do wish to hug God. And according to me, that means you are ripe. Your human evolution is coming close to an end and you want to go to the next level. And some of you would rather prefer, if you are to meet with God, you'd rather prefer to go to Las Vegas to try to make a fortune at the roulette. Fine. You are still in the cage. You are still a rat running in the cage. Is that important, going to Las Vegas? And It's not. It's just a waste of time. It's Fata Morgana. It's the glamour. It's the mirage of the world. But some people are like the moth around the flame, hypnotized by the flame and going in the flame and burning its wings and dying. Many people, because the world is so alluring, they say, let's have a bit of that. Let's try that. That's what Buddha calls desire. That everybody keeps hankering for something. And Buddha said, I'm not hankering for anything. Not even my parents, my palace, my wife, my child. I don't hanker for anything. I just want to be free. I'm desperate to be free. This is evolution. And it's very weird for those who don't have it. Those who don't have it, they say, why are these people fretting so much? And those who have it, they fully understand. They say, I'm like Ramakrishna. I'm like Ramakrishna. I want just that. I don't know. I thought I was crazy all my life. Now I came to Agama. I love these people. They are crazy like me. You know, they are my type of crazy. These people. That's why a yoga school accumulates or gathers spiritual people. That's why people come to Agama. Not because we have the best tendon stretching system in the world. I don't give a rat's ass on stretching tendons. But I'm curious to meet those of you who want out. I'm very curious to talk with those of you who want out. Those are the thrill, my my soulmates. Those are the people who are on the same page with me. So that's why. And those are a community. And they know each other. And they kind of communicate with each other. And they love each other. So, striving after liberation, after God, striving after perfection. Like Jesus said, be perfect like your Father in heaven. Who can be perfect? Nobody. And yet Jesus was so crazy that he said, be perfect. Try. Every day, every day, every day, every day, try to get perfect. But Jesus, it's impossible. Shut up. You didn't understand. Point is not that it's impossible. The point is that you have this urge in your heart. Either it's possible or not, it doesn't matter. But you are longing for it anyway. Because you want to stop being human. You want to become superhuman. And you are ready for that. Some people tell me, Swami, I don't think I'm ready. Good. 
you have my sympathy and also a bit of my compassion. Because it means you are going to run in the circle for another 2,000 lives. And in those 2,000 lives, a lot of things are going to happen. A lot of things. You are going to do good things and bad things because you will forget this night and this teaching when you will be in your next body. You will forget all this. And then somebody will piss you off and you will take out a gun and shoot them and start a vendetta. And then after 20 years you will find yourself in hell. Then you are going to remember Swami Vivekananda told me once upon a time that I will be on a roller coaster. You know, another 2,000 lifetimes of just biting the dust, standing up and cleaning yourself, and falling and biting the dust again, and it continues, forever and ever. Until one day, you'll come round exactly to where some of your friends in this hall are. And you're going to say, Swamiji, I think I came late, but now I came to understand, I also want out. Now I'm fed up. You know, it's like, I was not fed up 2,000 lifetimes ago, now I'm, I think I'm ready. You know, it's like, now I'm fed up. So, it, you, of course, somebody could say you could understand from the first time. But that's not the way it happens. So, aspiration after perfection. The desire to be detached. Most people that I encounter, they constantly want to be attached. They want to have attached lovers, partners. Very few people want to be detached. There are some people who say, I want to go through this life like a swan goes through the water. When I get to the other shore, I want to do like this, nothing is left. No father, no mother, no friends, no houses, no, it's like, I want not to be attached of anything. Very few people have that. And those are the people who realized how much you gather. And if you go for a thousand lifetimes, and in each lifetime you have new husbands, new wives, new sons, new daughters, new friends, new buildings, new pieces of land, new reputation and fame and name to defend, it becomes a huge burden. And one day you just have to do like this and say, I drop it all, you know. None of it meant anything ever. It's nothing. It's just attachment which makes you more and more engrossed in the mud of this existence. But the spirit is free. The spirit is not of this world. I am pure spirit and I want to go back home to my house of the spirit with the experience and memory of the matter but not with a burden, not with a burden, not with a lodestone to my neck. Free, free, like a free spirit. So evolved beings, they have the desire to be detached, to no longer run in circles, because life is running in circles. People do the same. Those of you who will reach to a bodhisattva level in this lifetime by doing yoga in Agama, or maybe by other methods, because Agama is not the only school that takes care of people's evolution. We think we are wonderful and we have a great method, but we are not the only place in this world where evolution is being accelerated. Those of you who will reach to a level of wisdom, you're going to see. All your brothers and sisters and parents and uncles and children, if you have any and so on, if they don't do what you do, they are going to look to you like blind people running in circles. Like you're going to see this person is going to get in trouble. I can see it. I don't need to be a clairvoyant. I know this person is running in trouble. Suddenly, they were 50 years old. I was just laughing with somebody, you know, of a common friend. He got 50 years old. He just got in bed with a 23-year-old girl. Now they want to get married. Now what's that? That's a moth flying directly in the flame. 
Well, no, people say, oh, Swami, maybe they found great love. And yeah, okay. Keep on with your romantic, uh, wishful thinking until you will live long enough to realize that that's not where they are going. Those people are blinded by desire and they are again running in a circle. Nothing is going to go anywhere. That's not the love of Ramakrishna for Sarada Devi. It's not wise. It's not the love of Aurobindo for the mother. It's nothing eternal, wise. and it's, You can see, because there are signs which show these things. So that's why not everyone has the wisdom. This wisdom is acquired in very difficult ways. And signs of evolution, if you ask yourself, you know, like if you want to scale from 1 to 10, where 1 is a gorilla and 10 is an angel or a deity, where do you think you are? Are you a 5? Are you a 7? Are you a 2? Are you, what are you? Everybody has the right to ask themselves, how evolved am I? How polished is my diamond? How many spiritual virtues and qualities I already have? Because if you acquired some degree of love, or some degree of compassion, or some degree of wisdom in a previous life, then you have it. That is never lost. Because the diamond which is polished in 16 faces out of 32, those 16 are polished. And they don't have to be repolished every time. Now you have to go to the facet number 17. Or everything which you did until today is still with you. You are the result, the resultant of your evolution, of all the lifetimes which you lived. And therefore, the signs of evolution, like this issue, look, I am ripe, am I prepared, do I have aspiration for God, do I have longing for freedom, and so on, or not. A great man like Beethoven, who was a tormented soul. Beethoven composed music, but he was not very happy. He got deaf. His mother was tuberculotic and his father had syphilis. He was not very happy in his relationships, not very fulfilled. So the music of Beethoven, which is very beautiful, most of it, is a music which is composed out of agony, out of pain. That man was not always happy. But his music shows a very great soul. And Beethoven said, I know no other sign of evolution than goodness. Like Beethoven says, if you are evolved, in my book, if you are evolved, you are automatically good. Good. When you will die, will it be written on your cross or whatever you'll have on your tomb? Will it be written, here lies a good person? Are you somebody who can be defined as a good person? Like kind, loving, good. You know, a good, a good man, a good woman. If yes, then Ludwig van Beethoven thinks that you are evolved. If you are an asshole and you are full of wickedness and tricks, then Ludwig van Beethoven says you are a bit of a monkey. You are not yet an angel. You still have way to go. And Paul the Apostle of Christ, he describes them as the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says, if you are close to God, you have received the gifts of the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit are wisdom, understanding, counsel, like right judgment, fortitude and courage, knowledge, which means authentic knowledge, 
not knowing that we are made of atoms, but knowing that we are spirit. Reverence, piety, being pious, and fear of God. You know, in, in English, to be a God-fearing person is not a negative thing. It doesn't mean you are psychologically skewed. God-fearing is a praise. Is a, if, you, if you fear God, then you will not kill, you will not lie, you will not steal, precisely because you are afraid of God. And actually the God-fearing person is a person who is nice. And the persons who are not God-fearing, they are the potential criminals and bastards. Because they don't fear anything, and they are going to just listen to their ego. They are just going to listen to their own personal interest, having no fear of God. So, think about it, research a little bit. What are the signs of evolution? Are you evolved? How could you become more evolved in the next five years? Is there a method to polish that diamond faster? Can you accelerate your evolution a little bit? Roughly, evolution is a one-way process. All these Hindu, Jainistic and other theories that you can be reborn as a dog or something, they are used for kindergarten. Great Tibetan lamas, they told to Evans Vents when he translated the Tibetan Book of the Dead for the first time in history, that it's practically impossible for a human being to be reborn as an animal. Those are metaphors, which are highlighting some animal aspects from our soul and showing us where we come from and defining the idea of involution or devolution, like the opposite of evolution. It's exactly like evolving is flying, flowing on a river. And on that river there is an eddy, there's a whirl, which apparently makes the water go uphill. Not much, not a kilometer uphill, a little bit uphill, and then it goes down further. So, lamas and gurus and metaphysicians, they say that generally you go on and on. Locally it's possible that you step back a step or two, for doing some unusual things. So if you are a human being who was uh, a monkey and now is a human being and you are prematurely born as a human being and then you behave like some of these uh, aboriginal Maori, African or some civilizations who when they got in touch with the western culture they started drinking and vomiting and just being living like animals and so on. It's possible that you involve a little bit. And it's possible to be born as a monkey again. But it's a sort of borderline traffic. It's like around the borderline, a few one in a million cases may be possible. Those one in a million cases, they don't define the general pattern. The general pattern is that evolution goes only forward. There are so many things to say, because I am sure now that I'm not going to finish speaking about it tonight. But evolution also can be automatic or deliberate. The animals evolve automatically. The ignorant beings who stay passive, they evolve automatically. Some beings which are in the astral world, like the souls of some dead people or others, they evolve automatically. And evolution can also be deliberate, which means some human beings, some beings that were not human but incarnated as a human being, or some even some animals to a certain extent, they can have some deliberate process. The deliberate process comes from this. If you truly are wise, you look at the big picture. And you say, I am a human being, and choose it or not, my soul is coming from somewhere far, far in the past. 
and my soul is going to go on in its evolution. Right now, I'm happy enough to be in the human body. So Swamiji is giving us a satsang, or I'm reading a book, and I understand. It's quite, I understand. And I'm not indifferent to it. It makes an impression on me. And therefore, I know I want to do something. And then I'm thinking, where does this evolution go? Like, can I stop it? No, because I didn't make it. I'm like floating on a river. I'm on a raft on a river. If I put my arms like this and wait, what is going to happen? I'm going to finish into the ocean. That's where any raft on a river goes. It reaches to the sea. How long? Paramahamsa Yogananda says it will take a million years. Okay, million years can mean 2,500 lifetimes. There will be lots of ups and downs. But if I just sit and do like this, in a million years, I'm going to be a Bodhisattva and the Buddha. Fine. Question is, do I want to wait that much? Because if you wait that much, first of all, it's a long, long time. Try to imagine what 2,500 lifetimes more, besides this one, means. It's a hell of a long time. And the second is that in those 2,500 lifetimes, if I'm just sitting, that then I'm not polishing my diamond. Life, or Kali, is polishing my diamond. And it's not always going to be nice. For example, I'm a person that is lacking generosity. And one day, if I am to become a Bodhisattva and a Buddha, one day I will have to become a generous soul. Tell me, how would you, if you would be God, or if you would be a deity, or if you would be a teacher of humanity living in Shambhala, how would you take a human being who sits like this and make them from not generous into generous? When the people are digging their heels like this and they say, that's what I am. Let it all happen to me. Believe me, there is only one way. And that is coercitive education. Which means my children are going to die in a war or in a plague my wife is going to disappear. I'll lose all my money. I'll get a cancer and have pain for five years in my lungs. I'm going to taste all the shit in the world until I will become generous. Like, you can be made generous, but that is done with a boot. Like, you get a boot in your ass. In Romania, the hustlers, the hooligans on the street, they have a proverb which says, any kick in the ass means a step forward for you. But you don't want to step forward because of a hundred kicks in your ass. You made a hundred steps forward, but each one of them was a painful boot up your ass. That's a painful way to evolve. And 99% of the people, that's how they evolve. That's why there is constant war and injustice and violence and pain and incurable diseases. And nobody can stop them. Because otherwise, people will not learn. Nobody wants to become generous and compassionate. They have to be whipped to become generous and compassionate, unfortunately. And thus, that's at least what nature thinks. Nature has, didn't get to our modern evolutionary methods of education in the Western world. 
nature goes the hard way. And therefore, if you want to wait 2,500 years, then it's going to be a roller coaster. And that's why people like Buddha and people like many yogis, they have said, I am inevitably pushed to become a Buddha. When Yudhishthira in Bhagavad Gita is asked what is inevitable, he doesn't say death and taxes. Yudhishthira says happiness. Happiness means ananda, it means bliss, it means the real happiness, it means ecstasy. And Yudhishthira, as a wise man that he is, he says ecstasy is inevitable. All of you are going to have nirvana and the state of samadhi. Only that some of you will have it in this body, in this lifetime. And some of you are going to be spiritually negligent. And you are going to have it in 2500 lifetimes from now. And meanwhile, you are going to bite the dust hundreds of times. And it's going to be really nasty sometimes. If you like that idea, that I sit on my raft and I wait to get to the sea, be my guests. That we call in yoga, tamas. Like you are inert. You are lazy. You won't move your bum, you won't do anything. Good. Even then, the universe can enlighten you. Just takes a million years and a lot of kicks in the butt. But then the yogis would say, if that is inevitable, like every one of you is programmed to become a Buddha. Then why wouldn't you try to do it in six years? And get over with it. Since you know the end of the story. You know the end of this movie. The end of this movie is that every one of you is a Buddha. Every one of you is a sleeping Buddha. So why not become it in six years. And then close your eyes and get out of your body. Or get on with something else. You know, like what comes after becoming a Buddha? Is there something? What did Buddha after he became a Buddha? No? So therefore, all the wise people, they have said in front of the inevitable, there is only one thing to do. You know, since we cannot choose if we want to be part of this game or not, then let's go ahead with it. That's why the wise people, they always want to accelerate their evolution. It's like, I know how this novel is going to end. So let's get there quickly, because then maybe there is something else. Maybe I go to the next stage. This is the understanding of evolution. And that is why, some, for some people, the evolution is deliberate. Like, if you sit and spin your thumbs, you still evolve. But very slowly. If you stand on your head 30 minutes per day and during those 30 minutes you concentrate on the crown chakra and you do I don't know what else, a few other things, then you will accelerate your evolution. That's why in the metaphysical workshop, as an example of this, we teach the technology of Paramahamsa Yogananda, the Kriya Yoga technology. Paramahamsa Yogananda says it very clearly in his book. The, the sun in nature, goes through the 12 astrological signs in 12 months. And when you breathe, you can do the same thing. One breath can be made equivalent with one revolution of the sun. If you breathe consciously and by using this and this method. And then if you breathe consciously, 
one breath, which is four seconds, can be equivalent with 365 days of living like a cow. Which means you are accelerating your evolution kind of a hundred thousand times over or something. So he says, if you do this thing four hours every day, then it will take you six years to fulfill that one million years of normal evolution. You can accelerate your evolution like a hundred thousand times over. So instead of reaching to Samadhi in 2,500 lifetimes, which is a million years, you can reach in six. This is what yoga is. This is what spirituality is. It is the wise men and women who realize that there is a choice and that instead of dilly-dallying and waiting and wasting time, you can just go forward. This is the beautiful Bulgarian proverb which I included in your handouts of the first level, which says if you want to drown yourself, don't torture yourself with shallow water. No, like if you want to drown yourself, go for it. You know, if you really want to reach nirvana, don't dilly dally. No, don't don't try to torture yourself with shallow water. Go for it. If you really want to drown, like if you really want to reach nirvana, don't use palliative methods. Don't use superficial methods. Go for it. The full monty. At least you know what you are spending your time with. At least you know what you are investing your energy into it. And thus. The condition is self-awareness, taking advantage of it. And I wrote here, just as the idea, that evolved beings sometimes can evolve very slowly and non-evolved beings can evolve quickly. Like the speed of evolution, that has nothing to do with the level of your evolution. Somebody who is far, far back on the river can take a motorboat and go really fast on the river. And somebody who is almost close to the sea can dilly-dally and waste time. Therefore, even the speed of evolution, and the evolution continues after death as well, and many of these things, now I'm going a bit fast because I want to finish, I see some of you are leaving already, I don't want to push you. So, um, just to go through the ideas, all these things in the metaphysical workshop, I will go into explaining them, because not because I just want you to know it, but because they all generate methods, like the Kriya Yoga method, and other such methods, they are coming precisely from this science. And then, there is the concept of freedom and bondage. Bondage means you cannot get out of this river. You are tied to this river. This river is your prison. Until you graduate, you cannot escape the process of evolution. The process of evolution is not optional. It's compulsory. That's the will of God. That's why when people ask me, Swami, what's the purpose of life? In general. It's very simple. Purpose of life is evolution. You are all incarnated in a human body. And you are all alive and present in this universe. Because God or the Buddha nature. Whatever you can call it. The Buddhas of the past, present and future. If you don't like the word God. They want you to evolve. But they don't want to evolve. Well, tough luck. You still will. It's not a choice. You don't get to vote for it. You are born to evolve. The universe wants your spirit to dip and dip and dip and dip and dip again until it gets impregnated with everything and it's complete. Until your diamond is polished completely. So you don't get, that's not an option. You can't step out of that process. That's why 
there is a bondage with the fact you are bonded, you are tied to this process, and then there is freedom. And the real freedom is when you finish this process, when you graduate. Like Buddha said it very clearly, from today I am free. There is no, I have finished the school. I am out of school. The school does not exist for me anymore. I can still live on this planet and look like one of the other dudes. But I am not a school, a pupil anymore. For me the schooling process is over. That's what freedom means in terms of yoga. That you are not subjected to karma and you don't have to report annual results anymore. Your evolution process is done. You have graduated. This graduation is like a threshold. And that's what shows that there is a purpose. That's why I say there is a hope. And the hope which I want to put in your hearts is this. You are going to be Buddhas. I'm threatening you seriously. You are going to be Buddhas. If it's going to happen in this life or not, you know, you decide. Because you can make it happen in this lifetime if you put all your willpower into it. So you'll decide if you are motivated enough or not. But even if you don't do it in this lifetime, in 20 lives from now or in 2000 lives from now, it still is going to happen. That's the light in the end of the tunnel. That you are all born for immortality. The soul which exists in you is a part of God, is a particle of God, and it's immortal. You have been entrusted with an Atman, and that Atman is God, and is immortal, and it will never disappear. And you can't make it, you can't stop it, you can't make it disappear. And the only thing which that Atman wants is to turn back to Brahman, to turn back to God. Your soul longs to go home. To go back into the ocean of light from where it came. Unio mystica. That's what yoga is. Is to go back home. To unite, to reunite with the source. And thus, there is a light in the end of the tunnel. You are entrusted with a divine soul and you can't destroy it. Even if you go to hell, you can practice Satanism and then you'll go to hell. For, let's say, 5,000 years. It's a hell of a long time to be in hell. And it's a terrible existence in hell, as it was witnessed by Milarepa and other great yogis who were capable to go to hell and visit. Just visit, not be part of hell, but just witness it. Hell is a terrible place to be. If you will be 5,000 years in hell because you tortured people in a concentration camp or what God knows what you did, then of course you are still evolving. Your soul is not destroyed because you went to hell. You will go to hell and roll on, your, on the floor and bite the dust and wail in agony. And one day that negative karma is going to be over. And then you will come out of hell. Exactly like people come out of a penitentiary. As people come out of a prison. You paid your debt. You are a normal citizen like us all. Maybe many of you here in this room already have been in hell even several times in the last 500,000 years of your personal evolution. It's possible. And that's why some of you are very careful now not to go again to hell because while some people are full of bravado and say, I am me, I am free, I don't care about anything, you are just fools because you don't know what you are talking about. Those of you who have been in hell already, 
They say, no, 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 I don't know why, but I definitely don't want to go there. There is something in me which tells me, don't touch it, don't touch it, don't go there. Your subconscious mind knows better. You've tasted that poison, and you know not to go there. So, evolution is not uh, extinction, which is the unfortunate name which Buddha has chosen for it. Nirvana means, like you blow off a candle, it means extinction. But he means extinction of the foolish desires. Extinction of this, ah, me, me, let's do this, let's do that. Calm down. Let this mad puppy die. Extinguish it. And then what is left is the Buddha nature, is the witness. So you are not extinguishing yourself. You are just extinguishing this primitive part of you, which is bringing you into trouble all the time. And that's why the yogis consider this not an extinguishing, but an awakening. And, you know, the Buddhists, nirvana, desire, disappearing, the Zen Buddhist, satori, awakening, vision. In the West, it is God-realization, divinization of man, knowledge, power, kingdom of heaven, salvation. In Hinduism, it's called moksha, liberation. And there are various degrees of liberation. That's what we explain in the metaphysical workshop. The situation is not simple at all. It's a very complex picture of the world. And this is coming to the evolution being slow or fast and according to the methods of spiritual practice. Like, for example, in India they have a method called Japa Yoga. To repeat a mantra. Like you take a mantra, you can write it on a piece of paper or repeat it with a mala, and you go and say, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. That's one. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna. And you do that thousands of times per day. Does that lead you to nirvana? Yes, the Upanishads say that yes. And so do great gurus like Swami Shivananda. Only that they say it may take 60 years. It may take 600 years divided in 20 groups of 30. Like it will take you 20 lifetimes and in each one of those lifetimes you are going to be a yogi and you are going to do Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna for 30 years and you will build one twentieth of the path. But there are methods which take six years. There are methods, Yogananda says, if you do eight hours per day of intense yoga methods, it can even take three years to reach the first state of samadhi. And thus, the speed, how much you press the gas pedal, the throttle, it's entirely up to you. And the methods are different. They are diluted methods and they are very powerful methods. And usually the religious methods, which are given to millions of people, they are watered down. And the esoteric methods, which are given to a hundred people in an ashram, they are full on. They are the hardcore methods. Those are called the esoteric methods. And just to conclude, people say, but Swami, so are you trying to say that when you become a Buddha, it's over? Actually, that's not really your concern right now, unless some of you is a Buddha already and born here and just remembering. But there is one evolution until the enlightenment. And that evolution is vertical to Sahasrara, because you need to reach that level of consciousness, awakening, enlightening. So it's the supreme consciousness. And then there exists an evolution after enlightenment, which is an infinite expansion in the universe, like conquering the universe horizontally, 
is the Shakti, the Prakriti aspect through knowledge and that is a horizontal attitude of conquering the universe and this is basically an infinite expansion. The great masters who got to this level, they acquire more and more knowledge, more and more, more paranormal abilities, more and more understanding of the universe and they can control portions, parts of the universe through this. So don't worry, if any one of you becomes a Buddha, it doesn't mean that evolution is over. But evolution becomes something different because once you become a Buddha, you cannot say, now I need an enlightenment of the enlightened beings. Like, Buddhas are relatively unenlightened. No. The enlightened consciousness of the Buddha is perfect. It bears no improvement. There is nothing higher. But there is a development this way. Because a Buddha can walk on water and another Buddha cannot walk on water. And the Buddha who cannot walk on water, he wants to learn how to walk on water. It doesn't make him more enlightened. Makes him more powerful, more knowledgeable and more effective. More godlike. So, there is another development which happens after enlightenment. That's a different story. I'm sorry that I kept you a bit long. I hope it was worth it. That's a very, very short resume of the story of evolution, how we see it in yoga. We teach you yoga here which can heal you. We teach you here yoga which can make you stop taking Prozac and Xanax or whatever and be happy with yourself without taking chemicals. We are teaching here yoga which can make you become greater intellectual beings or more loving or gods in bed when you have sex. We can teach you yoga that changes your daily life and we do. We can teach you yoga which can make you understand paranormal energies and phenomena. And we also do yoga which addresses your spiritual awakening. Either way, whatever you do, you are evolving. Remember, even if you become a murderer and go to hell, you will still evolve. Your soul still evolves. It evolves through a painful experience, like you stepped on red hot coal and you burn your feet because you are not prepared to walk on fire. And then next time, you will not lightly step on red hot coal because if you burned yourself once, then next time your subconscious mind will remember and say, woo, 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 don't do that. So you evolve even when you fuck up. Anything you do, you evolve. And there are ways of shortening that process. There are ways of taking shortcuts and pushing it. And that's what the spiritual yoga is for. That's what these methods are for. So that's why in Agama we say choose evolution. Instead of just sitting and spinning your thumbs and just taking a bottle of beer and sitting in a plaza and looking at the sun, how it's rising and setting, and basically in the end of the day you just say, I wasted another perfectly good day and I'm waiting for death to come and pick me up because my life seems to be for nothing. I'm not interested into anything. I'm just sitting and waiting for my time to pass. Instead of wasting time and evolving with a river, you can accelerate your evolution and that's what the spiritual methods are. So that's the spiritual relevance of yoga. And that's why we tell to people, choose evolution. Evolution 
is not optional. Evolution is compulsory. So understand it and you choose it. Don't be passive. Don't be chosen by evolution. You choose evolution. That's the wise attitude. That's what all the yogis and all the Buddhas and all the saints, that's what they advise us. Take responsibility over your evolution. Take charge. Take action. And start evolving. Choose evolution. This is what we advise you to do in everything. With your diet, with your yoga, with your sex, with your everything. Choose evolution. Choose what accelerates your evolution. Enough of this. Next week, remember, space-time lecture, which will be a bit experimental in some ways. I'll make you go into some states of consciousness. Preferably, if you fast, in that day, work on Vishuddha and Ajna Chakra as much as your time allows it. Two weeks from now, if everything goes as planned, our lecture about what is karma and how to deal with it. And uh, I'm planning one more lecture. Actually, I got inspired by the fact that we're planning a parapsychology workshop next year. And I wanted to talk to you about some of the parapsychological devices which teach you some things about what's happening in yoga. So maybe that will be three weeks from now or something. Until then, namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining and thank you for being patient tonight for this longer one. See you in the next Q&As and satsangs. And choose evolution. <laughs>